If you've ever opened the hood of your car and looked under there any time in your life, probably you've probably seen at some point battery corrosion, acid, battery acid, the whole nasty junk that builds up around your terminal cables. And uh, yeah, this is just a part of owning a car, I guess, right? It's just going to happen even no matter how clean you keep your car, no matter how new your car is, at some point that occurs. And you know what the real reality is? It will take a hit on the performance of your car and actually make your battery not last as long. But those who never, ever look under the hood of your car, the same is true, but you just may not be aware of the reality of it, right? And you may not be aware of what's going on underneath there. And I think this ties in a good mental picture, visual of what it is like to have bitterness in your life, because bitterness is corrosion that happens under the hood of your life. It, it takes a toll on you, and you may not realize it's even there. You may be aware of it, but you're sort of in denial about it. But when you choose to not to forgive and live graciously to other people, towards other people, then we're going to allow this to kind of build up and permeate in underneath the hood of our lives and affect our lives. And we know that not being forgiving to others leads to all kinds of things, anger and resentment, depression, health problems, isolation, and many, many more struggles. And if you live for any length of time, you're going to be challenged with this whole concept of whether you're going to forgive someone or not to forgive them. Because the truth is we live long enough that we are going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to do things that offend other people. Things are going to happen that you don't like. People are going to do things invertly or on purpose to you. And it's a terrible way to live just to allow this to just internalize and build up in your life. But it happens a lot in the body of Christ. Within the body of Christ, there's many people who just don't like other people, who have things that, that bother you that happened years maybe ago that you still can't let go of and move past. Well, there's hope and grace for those who find themselves in that struggle. And I think that's probably pretty much all of us at some point in our life or not, right? So the big idea of this little short book of Philemon is a call from Paul to Philemon to forgive and accept back his slave Onesimus. And not only just accepting back, but accepting back as a brother in Christ. And so this book of Philemon is full of practical wisdom and hope for those of us who struggle with these things in life. And so we're going to be back in chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 16. Let me just start out by reading 8 through 10, if you want to follow along with me in your Bible app, your Bible on the screen. Just I hope you're following along uh, with it in, in some regard here. So verse 8, Paul writes to Philemon, accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Let's pray and we'll look at this, these verses. Father God, we thank you for the truth of Scripture, God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have placed in each believer in this room, and your word is able to come alive in their life to illuminate the truth of the things they're struggling with, the areas of their life where they feel defeated, God, the areas of their life where they know that they're holding back from you. And God, I pray specifically in this area 
of forgiveness and bitterness as we look at this text, God, that you will help us to see that the gospel truly speaks to these things in our life, God. I pray you'll help us to just be willing to open the hood of our lives and to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think it's important as we look at forgiveness and obedience and generosity, I think it's really important that we look at some biblical foundations before we dive into this text. Otherwise, we won't really truly understand how Jesus equips us and what he tells us in order to deal with these things that come up into our lives. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. These are very, very uh, well-known verses among Christians because it really speaks to the heart of grace and salvation, where Paul wrote, It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one may boast. So the heart of our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by our efforts, our works, the things we contribute. Salvation is a gift from God. But immediately after telling us that salvation is a grace and a gift from God, verse 10, he tells us that we're saved for good works. Look at verse 10, the very next verse. For we, that's believers, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved for obedience. As believers, we're in Christ. God has declared us righteous in him. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us even, Paul tells us, he's given us the mind of Christ. And so God has given us all of these things so that we can experience, we will experience at salvation, just a radical change that happens in our life. So much of a radical change that Paul also writes in Corinthians that if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So if you've had a genuine, true Christian experience, you've really, truly placed your faith in Jesus, then you're going to progressively become more and more like Jesus. Because obedience flows naturally from the true believer's life as he's producing fruit, the Bible tells us. We produce fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit produced out of our lives. And so as a result of the change that Jesus made by grace through faith in him, then he's created us for these good works. But this absolutely doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. I mean, we all know that. We all struggle with obedience. So why do we do that? If we have the Holy Spirit, we're a new creation in Christ. If we have the mind of Christ, if he's made us a new person, he doesn't just change us, he creates a new person within us, then why do we still struggle? We're going to struggle. In fact, struggling with the tension between I want to sin or I want to do what God says is a a sign of a true believer. That's a fruit of a true believer that there is that struggle there. So obedience continues to be a battle because scripture tells us that we have this indwelling sin that still is in our lives. But I think it's important that we understand this because if we're going to have victory over bitterness And are we going to be a person who's generous, a person who's willing to forgive those who've harmed us and hurt us? We need to understand that these feelings, these things that well up inside of us that want to to be evil and mean and repay evil for evil to those who do something against us, that those things are not of the Spirit. And the struggle that we go through, this is not who we are anymore. Paul makes this clear that sin is not talked about in in Romans 70 says it's not talked about like it's who we are 
it's an external power, Paul says, that's at work within us. What is that? Is that just semantics? Does that really mean anything? It absolutely means everything because the truth is you are a new creation in Christ. He is changing progressively your desires, what you want, what your purpose in life is becoming clearer and clearer. And so as we navigate and live in this world that is inevitably going to hurt us and we're battling against the world and the flesh and the devil and these things that are coming at us all the time, we have through Jesus the power and the strength through our new identity in him to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and live a life that's going to be pleasing to God. But sin is absolutely still at work within us. It's like if you've had a flu lately, I know COVID's going back around again. If you have all those symptoms, you know, you maybe you got a headache or a sneezy, a sneezy, your you're kind of runny nose and that kind of stuff, you know that you have, say you have COVID, but COVID doesn't define you. You're not COVID, right? That's silly. Sin is the same way to the believer. It's a foreign adversary that's attacking you, but it's not who you are any longer. And so your, the, the virus uses your body and affects it. It's not, you're not defined by that. And so sin doesn't define you, but it's still at work within you. And sin is stingy. It says, I want what I want when I want it. It's controlling. It's self-consumed. And it doesn't want to forgive and show the generosity that God commands to us. But those things are not us anymore. And so the gospel motivates us from the heart for obedience and generosity. And so Paul's appeal to Philemon is based on gospel-driven generosity for obedience. Look at verse 6. Step back to verse 6, one of the verses that Roy covered last week. He said, Paul wrote to Philemon, he said, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here, the more thoroughly Philemon recognizes how greatly he has benefited from the gospel, the more inclined he will be to extend that mercy to other people, especially in this case, Onesimus, who's wronged him. And so that's why Paul can turn around in verse 8, 9, and 10 and say, accordingly, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Paul could have commanded it. He says, I, Paul, an old man and a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So this letter is unique because this is essentially a dialogue between Paul and Philemon. And a little bit of background, if you missed the last few weeks, Paul knows Philemon personally. This is a guy that he brought to faith in Christ through his ministry Philemon came to Jesus. Now, Paul is in, under house arrest, probably in Rome, many, many miles away. And there he encounters Philemon's runaway slave, a guy named Onesimus. And based upon the evidence in this book, Onesimus left Philemon more than likely because he stole something or did something wrong against Philemon. And he bolts, takes off, and runs away. He meets up with Paul in Rome, whether intentionally or just by happenstance, God's providence. But he stays with Paul. And at some point, Onesimus also places his faith in Jesus, just as Philemon did under Paul's ministry years earlier. 
So Paul writes back to encourage Philemon, hey, buddy, I want you to accept back Onesimus, not just as your slave. I want you to accept him back as your brother in Christ. So although this letter is unique because it's a personal correspondence here, Paul expects this letter to be read in front of the entire church, the entire congregation. A little reminder also from the history of this book that the church there in Colossae actually met in Philemon's house. So Philemon hosted, he's a wealthy man, more than likely room to accommodate a large number of people, and he hosts the church there in his house. So I love, this is kind of a side note, I love that when you think about the early church and when you think about kind of like K-groups, like what we do, just getting together in a home, getting together in a circle, in the living room, just how that, that's just such a organic way of doing church, very basic. I mean, all the tapestry and the stained glass and the beautiful buildings and all the stuff that we expect from church, order of service and all these things. In the early church, you just had people getting together and people just doing life in this, in this situation where they're just, we're meeting and we're talking about Jesus. We're holding each other accountable. We're sharing the Lord's Supper together as a meal. We're doing these things together as a group of people, the body of Christ, to encourage each other in a world that hates us and despises us. And so the church was this safe haven for them. But here we have this situation that's developed where um, Onesimus needs to come back, and Paul wants him to go back. And so this does affect the entire church, because Onesimus is going to come back in. How's Philemon going to treat him? Is he going to be rude to him? Is he going to punish him? What's he going to do? But it's even bigger than Philemon and Onesimus. This is something that's supernaturally included in our Bible as a real-life test to whether the gospel that Paul preached, was it really true and, and was it really applicable in just on a street-level, everyday way of living. I love what Justin Taylor says. He says, Paul saw the reunion of Philemon and Onesimus as an opportunity for both men to provide the church and the world with a living parable of gospel reconciliation and partnership. You see, it's one thing to say we believe in Jesus and that we believe that Jesus reconciles us to God and that Jesus reconciles us to one another, but it's a whole different thing to see it lived out in a small community where everybody knows everybody, right? And where we're rubbing shoulders and we're, we're hurting each other and offending each other. So can the gospel speak to real-life, street-level situations? And so Paul's going to make the case here, the gospel does change. It changes our attitudes. It makes us generous people. It makes us people who don't hold grudges and people who don't demand payback. We're people who imitate Jesus and the love that he had for us. And so Paul, as he wrote this letter, I mentioned this in week one during his imprisonment, he also wrote Ephesians and the, and the book of Colossians. And in Colossians, Paul says that the letter would be delivered by a guy, a guy named Tychicus, okay? Tychicus would deliver the book of Colossians, but also, more than likely, he was delivering something else, and he had somebody who delivered that letter with him. Why does this matter? In Colossians, it tells us, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, is the one that's going to be your traveling companion on the way back to Colossae to deliver this letter. So I think it's important that we get this picture in our, our minds here. As we're reading this letter thus far, Philemon hasn't gotten to the place where Paul has directly asked about Onesimus. But you know what he has? More than likely, he has Onesimus standing right in front of him. Onesimus and Tychicus knocked on the door. Philemon answers. 
he probably, his first initial thought was, how dare you come back to me like this, right? You're in big trouble, buddy. And Onesimus is like, uh, uh, this is from Paul. Read this first, man. Read this before you say anything. Don't say anything until you read this letter, right? And so Onesimus, or, or Philemon, opens the letter, and he begins to read this as Onesimus stands there, and this is happening. And so he was asking, Paul's asking for mercy from Philemon, because under Roman law, enslaved people had no personal rights, and they were property of their masters. As hard as that st- sounds today, that's tough to hear. It's true. They could be bought and sold and even mistreated. And I pointed out in the first week that the penalty for running away from one's master was torture, branding, or even death could happen in these cases. And so we're learning so much from Paul about generosity and gospel reconciliation and forgiveness and how that even when we are sinned against, that, it, that we are called upon to show a generous spirit. So Paul's here have historic and global consequences in real life application in this church. So look at how Paul appeals again in verse eight. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough to, in Christ to command you to do what is required. So he says, look, I have the authority. I'm your spiritual father. I'm an apostle. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm older. I, I have been in prison for Jesus. I have the authority to say, just do this. But he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. So Paul pleaded with him on behalf of his spiritual son. And this imagery here in the text is, is very strong, a family. It's the family dynamic, the family of Christ that brings us together. The, the word koinonia, which means fellowship, is so much more than just getting together over lunch. Koinonia is just like we're together for the gospel in this. And he says, so in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child. He's my son in the faith too, Philemon Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And so Paul here, uh, Piper writes, models for Philemon the superiority of appeals over commands when it comes to relationships governed by love. So why is Paul appealing rather than commanding? God doesn't have a problem with commanding things, but God wants our hearts. God, if he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't have you. God absolutely 100% cares about what we do. And actually in the Bible, forgiveness is a command. But most fundamentally, God cares about why and how we do certain things. And real change, lasting change, is always a matter of our hearts before it's ever a matter of our behavior. And so Paul could have pulled rank. He could have commanded Philemon, but he doesn't do that. He's modeling gospel-centered, grace-saturated forgiveness. He's, he's modeling the proper motivation for doing what we should do. And, and this motivation enables our obedience to God to be more about our joy than about our duty. Let me say that again. It becomes our joy rather than our duty. A guy named John Newton a long time ago wrote these words. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Let that settle in for a second. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since have be, have, we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. 
So what he's saying is what I just said, but he says it in a much more beautiful way, poetic way, that obedience becomes our delight the longer that we walk with Christ, we walk in the Spirit. And doing the things that went at one point were a struggle, were hard, become easier and easier as we walk with Jesus because we find delight in obedience. We find delight in doing what God wants us to do. Our heart and God's heart are joined together the same. And so when we have this sobriatic hit and miss relationship with Jesus, when we're in and out of the word and we're not consistent, then just like any relationship where you, if your spouse, if you travel and you go all over the place, you, it takes a little bit of reconnection. I remember when, as young parents, I would just go away um, as on a ski trip with the youth group uh, for three or four days. And Shelby, our daughter, was an infant at that time, just uh, one or two-year-old even, or around that age. And I would come home, and it would just take a couple days for her, you know, at least a, a, a hours for her to warm back up to me. Like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm a little cautious of you because I haven't seen you around here lately, right? And so the relationship took a little bit of warming up at that point. And, and so when we're not spending consistent time with God, God's not the one that's saying, okay, you need to work a little harder to get back into this relationship with me. God hasn't gone anywhere, all right? We're the ones that drift and stray, and stray away. And so a heart moves away. And so it's no wonder that we don't delight in what he wants for us to do because we're not in a love relationship with Jesus that's real and personal. I hope you're hearing that. I hope that makes sense to you because it's foundational because our faith should not be a drudgery. What we do for Jesus should not be a chore and a labor. When you get up and come to church, sure, it's hard, right? If you have kids and you're getting them in the car and Sunday's the day that everybody chooses to fight and argue and scream, right? It just is. I don't know why that is, but the devil's in there, I think, pinching the kids and making them yell and fight with one another. But it's, it's hard to get here. But wow, what amazing when we get with the body of Christ and we sing worship songs to God and we refocus our heart and our mind on what really matters and God reminds us of his glory and his greatness. And it's a delight. But so many times that it's not delightful for us because we're not walking with Jesus. And we can't be generous with other people when we're not walking with Jesus. Generosity sometimes is just a matter of just, I've got to do it because it's the right thing to do, but I sure don't feel it in my heart because it's not coming from a place of love. Now, I, like I said before, obedience is command. If you are driving your car and your mind is a million miles away from Jesus and a guy cuts you off in traffic and the only thing that stops you back from yelling at him and flipping him off is, is just like knowing that like, like somebody from church might be around you, you know, it, it's a good thing that you didn't do that, right? I, I'm glad you didn't do it. But, you know, the sin still happened if it's in your heart. And some of you think, well, it happened in my heart, so I might as well do it, right? Because I've already sinned. No, God wants us to be obedient. And sometimes obedience looks like I just got to do the right thing, even though my heart's not in it. But God wants our hearts. God wants us to delight in him. That's when we receive glory. He receives the glory. And as the Westminster Confession states that, that our, our chief in a man is to glorify God in what? enjoy. Enjoy him forever. And that is very possible to enjoy God, even though his commands sometimes run against everything to do with the world and what the world says is great and fun and things that we should jump into and be part of. And especially for you younger guys, younger Christians, younger ladies that you haven't experienced a lot of the world thus far, I want to warn you that the world will let you down. Culture, materialism, 
pursuing these things in and of themselves will let you down. These are false gods, and false gods always prove themselves to be false, and they fail you. And so don't learn from the school of hard knocks. Learn from those who have been there and done that, your parents, mentors, those who are discipling you and teaching you the word, that following God is the path to joy and delight. And sometimes it, it takes a while to figure that out, but I pray that God will, his grace will be on you if you take that road that's going to be a lot more rough and difficult for you. But over time, God will more and more change your duty into delight. And so that's what Paul's getting at there. And look at verse 11. He says about Onesimus, formerly Onesimus was useful to you, Philemon, but now he is uh, indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So what's Paul saying? He's telling Philemon that Onesimus is a new man in Christ. He's not the same guy that he used to be. And before, he may have been useless because of what he did to you, but Christ has changed him. In fact, Onesimus has been such a blessing to Paul that Paul's having a hard time letting him go, right? Like, this guy has been incredible. I mean, I love him. It's like sending my own heart when I send Onesimus back. The message says it this way, translation. It says, it feels like I'm cutting off my right arm to send Onesimus back. He's like, this guy is very valuable to me in Christ. But Paul is sending his valuable and helpful friend back because he believes, get this, he believes in gospel reconciliation, and he did it even though it was more personally beneficial for him to have Onesimus there with him, caring for him. Think about the application for that in our lives, right? Oftentimes, doing the right thing doesn't feel very beneficial to us. In fact, it feels like a liability a lot of times that I'm going to do the right thing and then I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be I'm losing something or I'm not getting what I want in life. But Paul says, I'm willing to let Onesimus go back to you, Philemon, even though he's a valuable asset to me because it's the right thing to do. And then verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So, as I said, Onesimus, he illegally ran away. But Paul's argument here is, God sent him to me. All right? Even though a wrong was done and he was your property, God sent him here. We talked about that. God's sovereign hand over this situation. That God provided Onesimus to Paul so, Paul could, so he could do for Paul what, what Philemon could not do, which was care for Paul's needs there when he was in prison. And so Paul is saying Onesimus was an extension of Philemon as he served Paul. And again, as I mentioned, and some of you discussed in your K-groups in week one, this whole concept of slavery is hard. It's hard to think about a person being the personal property of someone else. A couple of things I want to remind you that in ancient times, slavery was not like it was during the, the time of America and the transatlantic slavery. It was not based on, on the color of your skin, but it was based on a lot of other factors like did we win a war and defeat people? We're going to enslave them or people could sell themselves into slavery to help cover their debts. But nevertheless, it, it was difficult to think about the fact that people were enslaved and were personal property of someone else. But we see in this situation, that's important that Paul's 
respecting Philemon's rights here when it comes to Onesimus. He says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So he wants Philemon's heart to be in the right place in this. His respect for their partnership in the gospel, their friendship in the gospel. And then verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What Paul's saying is, God's taking this messed up situation where Onesimus did wrong, broke the law, offended Philemon, took off and left. God takes that and works it for his glory and also Philemon's good and our good, right? That now that Philemon or Onesimus has come to Christ, now look at what he said in verse 15, you can have him back forever. He's your brother in Christ. You're forever going to be with this guy. And so Paul again recognizes that his imprisonment was divine appointment and the hand of God was in all this. And Onesimus came to Christ through Paul through this time and now he will share eternal life with Philemon. God's hand on all this. But even with all this that Paul's led up to and made his case and preached the gospel to him and the gospel should motivate him. I'm not going to command It still ultimately comes down to verse 16 that Philemon has a choice to make. Look at verse 16. I want you to accept him back, Philemon. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He says, this guy's family now. He's family. He's wronged you, but I'm sending him back. I'm doing the right thing to send him to you, but he's family. I want you to accept Onesimus back without punishment. Yes, you have a right legally to do these things, but Onesimus, I'm sending him to you, Philemon, because I want you to see him through the lens of the gospel. I don't want you to send it to see it through whether he's harmed you and hurt you and he owes you. In fact, Paul said, I'll make it up to you if that's the case, but he's pleading forgiveness for him and Christian acceptance without punishment. Let's put that real quick in a modern context, all right? Because it's easy to read this, and this happened many years ago. Imagine that you're a business owner, and one of your employees takes your truck, your company truck, without permission, takes it for a spin, he wrecks it, then he shows up at my office here at the church, and I begin to talk to him, and he's worried to death about what's going to happen. I share Christ with him. He puts his faith in Christ. I give you a call, and I say, hey, I need to take back Joe. Like, I, I really think the gospel wants you to take him back, and not only just take him back, I want you to give him a raise, and I want you to treat him as an honored employee. You're like, uh, no, right? Paul's asking way more than that, okay? Honestly, way more than that in this situation. Because Paul recognized that this world is more than, it's more about more than just making money, being fair, making sure everybody feels affirmed and equal. He's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Paul's whole mission in life. And it should be our mission as well. And so if we're going to live with this gospel-motivated generosity, then we have to see that love and faith in Jesus is the motivation. Love and faith in Jesus is the motivation. How's your love relationship with Jesus? 
maybe sometimes you need to look at the opposite side and say, let me examine the fruit of my life. How generous am I? How eager am I to forgive? How quickly when my spouse wrongs me or does something to me, how quickly am I willing to say, I forgive you for that? Or do you want to punish them by making them pay for what they've done? Or somebody that works for you? What's the fruit of your life? Is your love and faith in Jesus making a difference on the street-level practical stuff of life? And then the heart application. Is your duty changing into delight? Is your duty changing into delight? Ask yourself that question. Yes, the Bible, again, insists upon obedience. But believers have a new heart and a new identity in Christ. Obedience is a delight more and more as we grow. Where is yours at? Is it a duty or is it a delight for you? And then our hands application. This is very simple, but you have to do it if you're going to grow in it. Meditate on verse 6. And I love the New Living Translation, I think, captures the idea the best. And so maybe use this verse to meditate on this week, where Paul wrote, he said, And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. As we understand all the good things that we have in Christ, we can be generous people, eager to do good works and serve one another, quick to forgive, quick to make amends, and allow the gospel to go out and us not get in the way of that. That's what God's called us to do. Love relationship with Jesus is where it comes from. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth that truly changes us from the inside out, that we can make the happy choice, which is obedience and serving you, not serving ourselves and being selfish and looking for what we can get in life. God, we look for your kingdom and your glory to be preeminent. And God, in that, we arrive at a place where we are delight, find delight and joy in that situation. And God, that's what you want from us. And God, I pray for those whose hearts are hard and distant and calloused right now. God, I pray that your word will break through those things. God, for those who are just kind of riding the fence and maybe just some days it's delight, some days it's duty, I pray you'll help them to be consistent in their relationship with you, knowing the Spirit will change them to become more and more of who they are. Thank you for those who have grown and continue to grow in you, God, that, that model for this body, gospel generosity and graciousness to one another, God. And may those people continue to be the examples to our body, not that we put them on a pedestal, but, God, we look and thank Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for them and for their model of this, these qualities and this fruit in our church. And we love you and we thank you for all that you're doing and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.